Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 219. Today is April 6, 2017. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, I want to ask you the question, is the Federal Reserve sabotaging Donald Trump? This has to do with uh, primarily with their decisions yesterday that came out in the FOMC meeting notes. Uh, But in general, I think you can see a pattern there. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Before we get started, I do want to mention that today I made a trade in my portfolio, and this is documented over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com, under the observations and commentary section. That's where I blog whenever I buy or sell a position. I I put up information there. That's the easiest place for me to uh, get the information out. I don't use Twitter. I don't use Facebook, uh, things like that for business. If you want to know about when I'm making a trade, subscribe over at investablewealth.com. You won't get spammed. It's free. It's just, uh, you'll get an email update anytime I put a post over there. So that's what you need to do if you want to know about what I'm doing in my portfolio. So, hey, what did I buy? Well, today I purchased a position in Verizon. This is a stock I've been uh, looking at for a long time. I regard the telecommunications industry as basically a utility. And this is a type of stock where it pays a high dividend and people are using it on a regular basis. It's like your electricity, whether the economy is good or bad uh, to one degree or another, you're still going to use electricity. You're still going to use water in your house. So in, it's similar in my regards to a utility stock. Now with the threat of rising interest rates, utilities have not performed well. That has been one of the reasons I've avoided them lately. And again, one of the reasons I've been hesitating getting into Verizon. However, the Verizon acquisition of Yahoo is, although it's not over, it's it's pretty much been resolved. Uh, they're getting rid of some of the key management in Yahoo, which I think is an excellent move. I was kind of waiting to see what they did with that. I think that if executed properly, the Yahoo real estate, although it may sound old school and uh, kind of an old dinosaur part of the internet, it actually has some sites with some very high traffic, Yahoo Sports, Yahoo Finance, some of the top rated real estate on the internet. It has not been commercially exploited. That's what I like about it. I think given the right management and tied into the right uh, avenues of content providers, things like that, it could be very profitable for Verizon. Now we need to see if they can actually pull this off or not. In any case, it's a utility-type stock. They have a great deal of revenue coming in. I feel that they have the best wireless network in the country. They pay a high dividend, but I do think also from a timing standpoint, it looks to me like they might be breaking out of a two-month consolidation period. The personality of a stock like Verizon is if you wait for it to break out or break down, you waited too long. It's a very fast-acting stock. You can look at the chart that I have over at investablewealth.com where you can see it quickly escalates to peaks or degrades to valleys when it has a significant deviation from its 12-day moving average. And if you wait for that to occur, you might already lose you know, five or more percent of an opportunity. And then because these things you know, only have maybe a 50% probability of working out, you don't want to get into a stock or get out of a stock after it's already fluctuated 5%, in my opinion anyways. So I'm buying into Verizon early, and if it falls apart, I will most likely just go ahead and keep collecting that dividend, as you've seen me do with other stocks. 
things like Walmart, Starbucks, and Disney. You know, these are things that um, I mostly purchased back during what I called my landmine strategy. When I my biggest concern was I wanted to be in the market because I wanted to get some gains, but at the same time I didn't want to have a catastrophic loss. I didn't want to blow up, so I was looking value. So I was looking for value stocks among large, high quality blue chip type companies that weren't in danger of going bankrupt anytime soon and were maybe out of favor with the market and at the same time paid a decent dividend. Now, of those three stocks I just mentioned, neither Walmart nor Starbucks has performed to the degree that I wanted them to, but uh, I think even since the last time we did an episode and I talked about my worst performing stocks, both Walmart and Starbucks are now in positive territory. So my strategy with them will be to, you know, hold them until I collect, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15% or more capital gain. And at the same time, along the way, be collecting that nice, reliable dividend on those kind of stocks. Because again, uh, although, you know, Walmart has its issues, it's competing against other retailers on discounting. And, um, you know, Amazon is obviously destroying the brick and mortar retailer. I think that of all retailers, for many reasons, Walmart is the most likely to survive. I feel similar about Starbucks. I think most of Starbucks' recent problems have been self-inflicted. And as I've mentioned before, I think specifically that when Starbucks starts replacing employees with more automation, we get some robots and things in there, you are going to see profits skyrocket there. And then of those three stocks I just mentioned, which have you know kind of been this landmine strategy, Disney has done excellent. It has it has performed the way I had hoped it would and the way I had hoped the other two would. I have a good, uh, I don't know, a really nice double-digit profit in Disney right now, somewhere up around maybe 11 12%. It pays an excellent dividend. I don't plan on getting rid of it unless market conditions really change. I bring all this up because Verizon falls into that same kind of category of stock. Excellent company. It's what I feel is the best in its class as far as telecommunication companies. Not going out of business anytime soon. Yes, it's out of favor. Yes, a lot of these uh, programs that have been coming on with unlimited data and things like that are are eroding some of the profits that these uh, cellular providers had been making. However, uh, Verizon has really hefty margins. They do command a premium. And even with all the discounting, they're making money hand over fist. That's a trend that I don't think is changing anytime soon. And with Verizon uh, getting into some of these other digital platforms like Yahoo, I think it just gives them a great opportunity to you know, provide more content and connect with their client base. In any case, today's topic, is the Federal Reserve sabotaging Donald Trump? Let's step into the time machine let me play you an episode from the Wellsteading Annals of Time. This is episode 185, recorded on May 9th, 2016. So just about a year ago today, the title of that episode was Blame It on Trump. In the last uh, section or segment or so of that podcast, I specifically talked about Donald Trump being, the at that time, the new Republican nominee the fact that no one thought that he would get there, that he was a real wild card, and that at that time I felt the chances of him being president were a good 50-50. And one of the consequences of that might be that, you know, whoever the next president was going to be, whether it was going to be Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or Donald Trump, whoever, that there were going to be a lot of problems. Right? We've had a good 16 or more years of problems building up. And for example, things like the distortion in interest rates that we currently see. 
interest rates should be somewhere around 4%, and the Federal Reserve was artificially holding them low around 2%. That has consequences to it, uh, as, as well as a number of other things that were going on. Those things would have to be adjusted, and wouldn't it be nice if that next president were kind of like a circus clown, someone that wasn't liked by the elites on either the left or the right, and so consequently, things that would need to be done to adjust the economy to more of a normal course, things like taking cocaine away from someone that has a drug addiction, you know, these are things that need to be done, but there's a lot of pain associated with them. Well, wouldn't it be nice to have a president in office where you could put that blame on him as you made those corrections, you know, if they went south? So here's what I said about a year ago today. The tinfoil hat conspiracy theory is, is that if the elites and Wall Street think that they can't control Donald Trump and that he is going to be a loose cannon, well, what if they decide to sabotage his presidency? And this is assuming that he does win and that he takes office in January. None of the elites like him. The Republican leadership doesn't like him. The Democratic leadership doesn't like him. If he gets into office and they feel that he's not going to play ball with the status quo, what if they give him enough rope to hang himself? We know that there are a lot of problems with both the economy and the overall political system, with things like debt, with things like unfunded mandates. I could go on and on, but you get the picture. And I think whether you're on the left or the right, you know that there are some drastic changes that need to take place. But no politician has a political fortitude to make any drastic changes because they all want to get reelected. None of them want to take the blame. And so they consequently just keep kicking the can no matter how big the problem, they kick the can down the road, they buy more time, they make the problem worse, no one is accountable, no one's responsible, political leadership goes from one party to the other, back and forth, back and forth, the can keeps getting kicked down the road, the day of reckoning keeps getting postponed, and although that's what I expect them to keep doing, you know, what if they decide to make some drastic changes during the administration of President Trump? That way, if anything fails, if there's a great deal of pain, which most likely there will be, if whatever things that might be politically unpopular but are required to take place to try and put a band-aid around a failing political and economic system, what if all those things that were unthinkable that could never occur because no one wanted to take responsibility, what if the political elites let Donald Trump try and make some of those changes and in fact maybe even voice those changes upon him? So that when the pain and suffering is felt, the blame all goes to Donald Trump. That way, obviously, the Democrats can avow any affiliation with him, and the Republicans can say, hey, we never really liked him anyways. He wasn't one of us. He's an outsider. Now, based on what's happened since November when Trump was elected, some of the movements we've seen with the establishment, particularly with the Federal Reserve, and specifically with the FOMC meeting notes that came out yesterday, I think we are starting to see people position themselves, institutions position themselves to be able to possibly make the corrections that are needed to the economy. And then again, when things don't go well, they will be able to blame it on Donald Trump. Specifically, what I'm talking about are two things that came out in the FOMC meeting notes. And you know what's interesting about this is those meetings are well orchestrated. They know that Wall Street lives and dies by the things that they say in those meeting notes. And so they use them to, number one, set up trial balloons to, you know, 
put something out there, float it out, see what happens, let them determine how well the market or how well the general population is going to perceive that and whether or not they, they should proceed in that course or not. So make no mistake about it. Uh, nothing slips in those meeting notes that they don't want to specifically be said. Again, it is very well choreographed. The two big things that came out of the notes this week were number one, they stated that they felt that stocks were at a very high valuation. Now, they weren't as direct as Alan Greenspan was back, oh, I don't know, sometime before the dot-com bubble. Was it uh, 1996 or 97? You know, a good two, three years before the dot-com bubble blew up, Alan Greenspan coined that perfect phrase of irrational exuberance. They weren't as direct as that, but they did specifically say that they were concerned about the overvaluation in the U.S. stock market. In fact, they talked about global stocks in general. I happen to disagree with them there. Okay, that was no mistake. They were sending that out as a clear message, in my opinion, that, you know, hey, should the stock market fall apart, maybe because we're raising interest rates, it's not our fault. It's the fact that things are overvalued to begin with. I think that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the ways they're setting this up to deflect any of the blame on a souring economy from themselves. Although you don't ever want to fight the Federal Reserve and you don't want to fight them in terms of interest rates because they control the cost of money and the velocity of money. And that's why that old adage is out there, don't fight the Fed. If they're raising interest rates, that means that they're trying to get the economy to slow down. If they're cutting interest rates, that means that they're prompting and prodding the economy to speed up. On the other hand, when they come out with statements about the market being overvalued or when they try and favor one industry group over another, because the Federal Reserve only controls monetary policy and they don't control directly control anyways, fiscal policy, or more importantly, legislative regulation type policy, then they can really say whatever they want. And again, usually it's set up as a trial balloon. I think they do it in cohorts with other institutions, both inside and outside the government to, to see what they can get away with. But I don't think that the Federal Reserve Chairman's statements about a particular industry or sector of the economy carries the same weight as a powerful politician. And to give an example of that, going back to what I mentioned about Alan Greenspan, he did specifically, directly, as powerfully as he could have used his bully pulpit, he came out prior to the explosion, implosion of the internet bubble and said that stock markets were way overvalued and it was irrational exuberance. Now, again, he was eventually right, but he was two, three, four years early. So the markets really ignored what he was saying. Now, I think you can draw a direct parallel to comments that Janet Yellen made back in, oh, I think it was 2014 or so, might have been early 2015. She specifically mentioned that certain sectors in the stock market were very highly overvalued. I think she mentioned specifically social media stocks and, and specifically she mentioned biotech type stocks, pharmaceuticals. There was a little bit of pullback correction in those, but not much, and they went on to make new highs. Now, you compare that with when Hillary Clinton tweeted, and I think this was sometime in later 2015, Hillary Clinton specifically tweeted that pharmaceutical companies were making too much money, and you saw an absolute collapse in those type stocks, which has gone on till today. 
The difference there being that Janet Yellen, yes, she does control interest rates and things of that nature, but she can't specifically go after and penalize a particular industry the way a president or a high member of Congress or the Senate could. Incidentally, full disclosure here, I do continue to be overweighted in some ETFs that deal with health care because I think that that trade has turned. This has been my position since the end of last year, beginning of this year, because I think those concerns were overblown. And whether it was going to be a Clinton or a Trump in office, neither one of those political parties is going to significantly pull the plug on health care spending. Ah, but I digress. In any case, while many people out there in the financial media are hyping up the fact that the Fed is saying that valuations in the stock market are too high, I personally would ignore that for now. That's maybe even a little bit of a red herring. And as I said, it's protection for them that should their interest rate policies or their money tightening policies go into effect and it have a detrimental effect on the stock market, they can say, hey, it wasn't us. We told you months ago that valuations were too high. It's your own fault. So that gets to the big thing that they really talked about, which was not only the need to further increase interest rates at a faster pace, but also to start reining in and reducing the balance sheet that they hold, which is some $4.5 trillion. That's a significant move. It's a very strong departure from you know, the posture, the policy statements that they've had over the last eight or nine years, and it could have significant repercussions on the overall economy. It's been 16, 17 years. We've rarely gotten above 2% real GDP growth. We certainly have not gotten much above that over the last eight years. The Federal Reserve has done the best they can, in my opinion, to mask that and to take and deflect the responsibility from that away from specific politicians, away from the White House over these last 16 years by keeping these very low interest rates, much lower than they should be. Interest rates right now on the 10-year treasury should be about 4%. So we're significantly, you know, pretty much half as much where we should be with interest rates. That's a problem for many reasons. It's primarily a problem for not only individual savers, but institutions that are based on savings like insurance and pension companies that base their future payment obligations on a 7% return on their money, and they want to do that in a very safe environment. That's why pension funds, insurance companies, they invest in stable sources of revenue like appreciating rent-paying real estate. Well, we're in a market where interest rates are at 2%, and if they're calculating their future payouts on 7%, that's going to be a problem for pension funds in the future, unless those rates can get higher. So that's a major problem. The other problem is that these low interest rates, and you've been hearing me harp about this for for two, three years now, these low interest rates cause people to make malinvestments, just like any types of price controls have. And that's what you have with money flow in general right now. Money is very cheap. If money is cheap, then you disregard it and you put more of your investment portfolio in things like real estate or in things like the stock market, trying to get a better return or a better yield on your money. That was the intended purpose for lowering interest rates back in 2008. Well, those chickens are coming home to roost now because we're eight, nine years into this. We've artificially kept these interest rates so low, and really the only sectors of the economy that we've seen get overheated are real estate and the stock market. So the Federal Reserve needs to change their policy. They need to try and normalize the rates. That means that 10-year Treasury needs to get up around 4%. 
The problem with that is, again, it's like taking alcohol away from an alcoholic or crack or meth away from a drug addict. There's a lot of pain associated with that. That's why when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, historically, it's the cause of past recessions. It quenches the economy. The other thing that the Fed talked about in their notes, and this is directly related to the interest rate policy, is they've talked about starting to reduce their balance sheet. And again, this is something that hasn't been talked about in a long time, and I've been a believer that they're just going to someday write that off because it's money that was created out of thin air. People talk about, oh, if interest rates go up, the Federal Reserve balance sheet will be underwater, they'll be undercapitalized, they'll go bankrupt. Well, the Federal Reserve can't go bankrupt. They print the money. It's like a teenager that has a credit card whose parents are paying the bill. That teenager is never going to go bankrupt. He just goes back to mom and dad and gets more money. Well, the Federal Reserve, if the assets on their balance sheet go underwater, if they start becoming valued, you know, mark to market for less than what they are, they'll just print more money up to make up for it. They can't go bankrupt. It's impossible. So while I've been a believer that long term they were just going to eventually write that debt off anyways, what they've talked about in the notes from this week has been that they're, they're talking about reducing that. Because while they've theoretically ended quantitative easing back uh, in the fourth quarter of 2014, what they've been doing since then is just rolling over that debt. Right now, we're seeing the Federal Reserve buying government debt somewhere in the order of $200 billion a year. If you look at the overall federal government deficit, let's call that $600 billion a year. That means that just by rolling over the amount of debt on their balance sheet, the Federal Reserve is consuming about 30% of government debt. So if they start talking about walking away from that and retiring some of that debt, that'll leave a big void in demand for government treasuries. That means that the Chinese, the Japanese, or the Europeans, or somebody's going to have to step in and start buying up some of that debt. And one way or the other, unless there's an equal amount of consumption out there of 30% of government debt, that means interest rates have to naturally move up. And since the 10-year treasury is the benchmark for what all other debt is based on, that means that all other debt have to go up as well. Mortgages, car loans, credit card debt. All of those interest rates are going to have to go up. That is going to pull back on an economy, which I believe is still very fragile. And if the economy starts to cool off, if there's a pullback in the stock market, if there's a decline in the real estate market, well, who's to blame? I think it's Donald Trump. In any case, I appreciate you listening. Am I wrong? Am I right? Well, come on back for future episodes and we'll see how this whole thing plays out. Until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.